0: This is episode 1,757. Welcome back. We are midweek through our series on how to manage addiction. And in today's episode, I have a special treat for you. All week long, you have been discovering all about how to manage addiction, how to avoid addiction, and what to do if a loved one is struggling with addiction. The focus has been primarily on building lifestyle habits as well as learning the danger signs of addiction and how it impacts your brain and how you can recover From addiction, there is a way out. But what do you do when addiction has gotten out of hand? Who do you call? Who do you reach out to? Whether you are experiencing a situation that is a potential overdose or if a loved one is Needing support because they may have gone too far, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and they have overdosed. They need help. Who do you call and what happens to them? So I have a special guest for you who's going to help answer some of those important questions. This is a powerful interview with an attorney, Kendra Paris. And Kendra Paris is a practicing attorney out of Orlando, Florida. And state laws vary from state to state. And of course, depending on the country where you live, your laws may be completely different. But I thought I'd give you a snapshot of what can happen when a loved one is Baker-acted, or what if you find yourself Baker-acted? The term Baker-acted is a statute only for the state of Florida. I happen to live in Florida, and we often hear, oh, this person or that person was Baker-acted. And it carries a sense of, being really seriously impaired from an addiction or depression. Maybe somebody is suicidal. And this has become a verb that's become pretty prevalent as a slang term that means involuntary commitment. And it's even popular as a term in other regions of the United States. Again, where you live may exist a similar version of being Baker acted. I thought I would give you a snapshot of what can happen when addiction or any other kind of mental illness goes wrong. So again, the Baker Act is an involuntary examination which can be initiated by judges, law enforcement officials, physicians, or mental health professionals, there must be evidence that the person possibly has a mental illness or is in danger of becoming a harm to self, a harm to others, or is self-neglectful. The special guest today, Kendra Paris will explain all about Baker acting and its equivalent that may even apply to wherever you may be living and why it's vitally important to know your rights and the rights of loved ones in the event this happens to you or a loved one being involuntarily committed anywhere has the potential of taking away your human rights. And this is why the Baker Act has become, in many instances, very controversial. For good reason. At the same time, it can be very beneficial and even life-saving to those people who need to be involuntarily committed because they are a harm to themselves or others. So without further ado, I'm honored to introduce you to our guest, Kendra Paris, and I hope you enjoy the interview. So welcome to our interview. We have a very special guest here, and she is someone who is going to provide you with valuable information if you find yourself detained in any way in regard to your mental illness, stress, any kind of anxiety, and you may find yourself baker acted. And so I have with me here an attorney who's passionate about what she does. In fact, on her website, I love her tagline. It says, write now. And that is truly how she responds to people who reach out to her. She goes to all measures to help those who have been Baker acted against their will. So just as an introduction to Kendra Paris, she obtained her undergraduate degree in philosophy from the University of New Mexico before getting her Juris Doctor from FSU, Florida State University, in 2009. She initially worked for the Florida Department of Correction in administration law before working for Oglethorpe, a mental health and substance abuse provider in four states. In 2016, she opened her own practice to work on the other side of the coin, providing defense to individuals who are caught in Baker Act situations. She did this because she saw a desperate need. There are few attorneys working on mental health defense in the state of Florida, and she thought she could provide a much needed service. So, Kendra Paris is practicing law in Florida. She's fighting for the cause for people in the state where I currently live, but you may have other people in your state. Who, likewise, could help you? You may never have thought of reaching out to an attorney to help you with your mental health needs. So, I welcome you, Kendra Paris.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. I would like to ask you a little bit about how you got involved in what you're doing and what really spurred you to support people with mental health issues. As you mentioned, there are few attorneys working on mental health defense, probably across the nation, maybe even in other countries. So tell me a little bit about your path.
1: Well, I was working initially for the Department of Corrections and I can't say that was a passion job. It was something that was born of necessity because at the time I was in Tallahassee, obviously the seat of state government in Florida and, um, and the financial crisis was going on and there were very few jobs. And so I started off working for state government and I did have a little bit of experience with mental health at Department of Corrections because obviously uh, corrections departments have a lot of individuals for whom they care who deal with mental illness. And so you'd have to go through internal policies and, and court hearings to administer medications for inmates who didn't want to take them. And um, you know, we, we housed a lot of people with mental illness, but I eventually needed to move on because um, state government was not what I wanted to spend my life doing. And I started working for Oglethorpe and, and Oglethorpe is a provider. So they're in Florida, Louisiana, Texas, and Ohio. Um, but working on the provider side of things is pretty boring. I will say it's mostly Medicare and Medicaid and payment services. Um, we, I knew we had two Baker Act receiving facilities in Florida, but I never really worked on the Baker Act issues per se. Um, we just worked on compliance, making sure we were following the law. And I knew when I opened my own practice, because I did want to start my own firm that, um, that I was interested in working in mental health. I just didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And so I think this is how it goes for all the other attorneys whom I do know, and I can count them on one hand to work on Baker Act issues. It was somebody I knew personally. It was actually my fiance at the time who was in a car accident and um and he was admitted to the hospital he was unconscious for a couple of days and when he finally woke up he you know he had tubes coming out of him he didn't know where he was and he completely freaked out um and so it took a, a few orderlies um to to hold him down and out of an abundance of caution they Baker corrected him so under florida law Um, A health professional or a law enforcement officer can actually Baker Act somebody. And that is an involuntary 72-hour mental health examination. Um, And so I, I didn't believe at the time a Baker Act was necessary. But once that examination is started, there's really very few ways to make it end unless you know what you're doing. And it's a very complicated statute Um, And so 72 hours went by and my fiance was not released from the Baker Act and I knew that that wasn't right Um, But I didn't know what to do about it And so I went home and I took a crash course myself as an attorney on what I was supposed to do in order to get my My fiance out of this Baker Act situation. He was doing fine Um, There was certainly no mental health crisis at the time But they were holding an individual against his will and, and I knew that that was wrong Um, And so I I researched and I found out about petitions for habeas corpus. Um, And and, um, it's an interesting point of fact, you you might've heard of a petition for habeas corpus before in the criminal context. So whenever somebody is incarcerated under criminal laws and they believe that that incarceration is unjust, they can go to the courts and say, um, I'm filing this writ for a petition a petition for a writ of habeas corpus I want the courts to determine whether or not my stay in this Facility is just and whether there are legal grounds for it Well, it's the same thing that you do in a Baker Act situation is you go to the courts and you say I think this Baker Act is wrong um, there are a lot of procedural matters that attain to it, pertain to it. But uh, I went up to the uh, hospital administration and I said, with respect to my fiancé, look, if, if you don't release him, I'm going to file a petition for habeas corpus. And he was out within a few hours. So I knew that there was some power and knowledge. And when I opened my practice, I decided I was going to start working on these Baker Act issues as a, a large part of what I did.
0: That's the well, long answer. No, that that's that's a great reason. You know, you followed your passion. And um i'd like to just go over um what a baker act is i describe it um leading up to the introduction of the this interview but could you explain what is a baker act and what happens when you're baker acted
1: sure so people use the term baker act pretty broadly even though it can have a couple of different meanings. So the Baker Act came around in 1971. Um, Representative Maxine Baker was a state lawmaker. And at the time it was very easy to make an allegation that somebody was uh, mentally ill and have them placed into a facility against their will uh, for an indefinite period of time. There were very few rights that, that um, Individuals who were detained in what we would call sanitariums back then Um, Very few rights that they had and ways that they could get out and there were very few uh, Means to hold somebody accountable for making a false allegation for example uh, About why somebody needed to be in a facility so Maxine Baker put together this package at the time It was pretty revolutionary to ensure that there was a set um, and fixed process to get somebody in for an involuntary examination And if they needed further treatment for involuntary treatment thereafter, after the court actually heard the case and was able to determine and provide that due process that was lacking before. Um, And so um, it is obviously... um, I think at this time people who are familiar with the Baker Act might have a negative connotation of it at the time It it had quite a positive one because it ensured the rights of the mentally ill who were placed in facilities against their will Um, But when people talk about Baker Act today, what they're usually referencing is that 72 hour 72-hour examination Uh, so again uh, a law enforcement professional or a health professional can uh, initiate the Baker Act and that that initiation is for the 72-hour examination Um, but within that time period that somebody's in the facility, the facility can actually file a petition with the the circuit court in the County to have that individual, um, committed for involuntary treatment for a period of up to 90 days. So that's that's sort of a two-step process and that's the Baker Act in a nutshell.
0: So, um, when someone is Baker acted, are they medicated, um, Are they often medicated or led to believe they need to take medication and do certain things that they may not need or that they don't want to do? Um, And given the threat that if they don't do this, then they're not going to get out. Like maybe you could talk about some ways that people who are being Baker acted are being violated.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and I think this is one of the main reasons that it has a negative connotation these days. If you look at uh, the past couple of decades, the number of people who are Baker acted has expanded exponentially. Um, so uh, I, I think that it was well-intentioned, although I think that it is being abused at this point. Under Florida law in particular, although I do know that this is the case in most other states, individuals have a state constitutional right to determine their own health care, and that includes mental health care. However, when you are admitted to a Baker Act facility, and I will say I do know every state has something akin to the Baker Act. It, It is some mechanism by which law enforcement or health professionals can involuntarily commit somebody for an examination and if the courts determine it's necessary for involuntary treatment, um, but you do have a right to refuse medication if you think that it's not good for you if you don't want it And parents have the right to refuse medication on behalf of their children In Florida, this is very specific. It's under article 1 section 23 of our state constitution And it's embodied in what we call a right to privacy um, But you get into a Baker Act facility and the psychiatrist who is treating you at the time holds all the cards And so often, um, because at this point, psychiatrists really have, it's a one trick pony, they have medications. Um, And so if they don't have any medications to prescribe, they don't have much of anything to do. So I've never had a Baker Act client who was not um, told that they needed some sort of medication. And this is for kids as young as seven, eight years old. I've had uh, psychiatrists want to prescribe antidepressants, um, things like Clonidine, which is a central nervous system relaxant. Um, so often parents are very reluctant to want to do that, and individuals are reluctant to want to take medication, um, and often rightfully so. The problem is that even though you have this right to refuse medication, if you do, you can be deemed noncompliant by the psychiatrist and risk being held longer. So if you're non-compliant, the psychiatrist can say, well... Fine, if you don't want to take these medications, I'm going to file a petition. And once a petition is filed by the facility, they have an additional five days. That's five business days, so that includes the weekend, um, in which they can hold a hearing with the circuit court. So at this point, you're talking about somebody potentially being in um, for... 10 days to two weeks before any due process. Um, and a lot of times that's simply because they don't want to take psychiatric medications. Um, and that's problematic if you don't have an attorney or if you're not familiar with the laws, you're often at a loss as to what to do. So that's one of many, uh, issues that I have with, with abuses of the Baker Act, And I'm also troubled by, um, you know, even in the past five years, the number of Baker acts of children has expanded by approximately 50%. So 50% (sighs) more, and it's usually kids being Baker Acted from school. The, the, The statute clearly states that Uh, It's not to be used for antisocial behavior. It's not to be used for kids who have a neurological disability, such as autism, or a developmental disability. But it often is because schools don't know what else to do. And so they know they can just get the kid out of the classroom by Baker acting them. So they call in the local law enforcement, and the kid is taken, often without the parents knowing. Um, it's, it's up to the facility to notify the parents, but the school doesn't have to. So it's usually done by the time the parents find out. And at that point, they're under that 72-hour clock. So so, so yeah, the, it's problematic.
0: And if they do take the medication, does that merit them staying longer so the psychiatrist can observe them while they're medicated, especially if they have good insurance?
1: Then there's the catch 22. You're absolutely correct because what will often happen is if you start on a course of psychiatric medication, psychotropics, another word for it is neuroleptics when it's an antipsychotic, which they'll often, um, antipsychotics are euphemistically called uh, mood stabilizers in a lot of facilities and by a lot of doctors. But if you're told that you're being prescribed a mood stabilizer, nine times out of 10, it's actually an antipsychotic, which is a very heavy duty medication. Um, Abilify, for example, which is used as an adjunct in treatment for some depression is actually an antipsychotic or a neuroleptic. Um, But if they start you on a course of medication, they will often say, well, we don't know how you're going to interact with this medication. So we want to keep you for observation. Uh, The thing to remember about the Baker Act is that um, whether we're talking about mental health care or physical health care, you cannot be held against your will, and you cannot be forced to obtain treatment for something if you don't want to do it what the baker act is supposed to um, to prevent is imminent danger so one of the criteria to initiate a baker act and to keep somebody longer is that they have a mental illness and because of that mental illness they are in imminent danger to themselves or others um, if if you're missing that danger part of the equation the baker act is illegal and it is not supposed to happen a lot of times that gets lost in the mix and the facility just really they think this person could benefit from mental health treatment and so they keep the individual longer. That's legal, they're they're not supposed to do that. So yes, if if you take the medication, they'll try to keep you for observation, even though observation is not the point of the statute. The point of the statute is examination. And if a court determines you need treatment, then treatment, but only after a hearing. Um, So if, if a Baker Act facility is saying, we need to keep you longer for observation, they're breaking the law, technically. And that's when a lawyer might come in handy.
0: So, when, how is the treatment usually in these facilities for people? Is it a place where there's caring and there's compassion? Are there different levels of facilities where you may be baker-acted? I know the police are obligated to, or or they're not obligated, but they um, are just simply required to bring people to the nearest. Facility, mental health facility, whether that person might need to go to a more higher level facility or not. So, um, can you explain a little bit about what these places are like?
1: Yes, um, and this is one of the biggest problems. Most of the Baker Act receiving facilities are private and for profit, there are a handful of not for profits. Um, there are a handful of facilities that are actually run, for example, by um, a state government so or a county government. I know down in Broward, for example, you have um, the Memorial Healthcare System, which is run by the Broward County government. Um, the county commissioners, in fact, actually have control. It gets a little bit complicated legally, but most of them are private and for-profit facilities. And when you have a private for-profit facility, their, their goal is um, profit. And so there's a lot of cutting corners. Um, It is absolutely not the best mental health care that you can get in any facility, although some are better than others. But what I find most troubling is that um, when you come into the facility, uh, if you're a minor, your examination is supposed to commence within 12 hours. If you're an adult, you might be there until day three before you even see a psychiatrist. But when you do see the psychiatrist who has to sign off on your release if you're going to be released, Um, It's about a two minute uh, touch and go uh, review of the reasons that you were admitted. They might ask you a couple of cursory questions and then they'll make a spot diagnosis and they'll prescribe medications. It is absolutely substandard care. No individual with an actual mental illness, whether it's a serious mental illness Or it's a moderately non-serious mental illness such as depression or anxiety that hasn't advanced to to major depressive disorder should be treated in this kind of manner. Um, And and, at this point, psychiatrists don't do talk therapy. In most of these facilities, there is no one-on-one therapy. And so what will happen is is essentially the person is committed um, and they are warehoused for 72 hours. They might see the psychiatrist a total of five minutes while they're there. Um, most of their care if they get any is provided by nurse nurses and technicians Um, but usually they just sit around all day long There will be a couple of group therapy sessions and what these will consist of usually is a worksheet Um with virtually nobody participating Um where you'll have to do something like um circle the smiley face or the sad face if it applies to you There might be a brief discussion These groups are held for the purposes of um Reimbursement the facilities have to have a certain number of group therapy sessions per day in order to be reimbursed by the centers for Medicaid and Medicare services And so they do it because they have to in order to to make money Um, But it is not therapy and it is not care Um, And so so I, I think it's it's very troublesome And yes, it's true that when an individual is Baker acted by law enforcement, they they must be sent to the the nearest Baker Act receiving facility in most circumstances. Now in certain certain circumstances, you'll have somebody who's made an actual suicide attempt. And so they are in an emergency situation. In those situations, police can take the person to the nearest emergency room, even if it's not a designated Baker Act receiving facility for emergency care. Um, They might be under a Baker Act at that time, but the moment that they arrive at the the hospital, the, the treating doctor will note that the person has an emergency medical condition and that 72 hours is put on hold until the emergency medical condition is treated and it's lifted. It's called being medically cleared. So once the person is medically cleared by the emergency room doctor, then the 72 hours starts to run again. Um, if you're at a facility that's a non-Baker Act receiving facility, they actually need to transfer you within 12 hours to a Baker Act receiving facility or let you go. If you're held in an emergency room that's not a Baker Act rece- receiving facility, um, for more than 12 hours against your will, it converts into a false imprisonment. And this happens a lot. Um, I'm I'm dealing with one case down in Broward, actually, where that happened. And, and the individuals, in fact, kept for another seven days um, against your will. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting, interesting uh, law.
0: So I've read where most people at some point in their life go through a depressive type of episode, whether it's the loss of a loved one, um, loss of a job, and somebody could have gone their whole life just fine and go through a difficult time, which we all go through and be baker acted by someone. Or by their medical care provider, even, for talking about feeling depressed or even feeling suicidal without maybe even a plan for suicide. Is that true?
1: Uh, Yeah. And and I, I really worry about the overuse of the Baker Act these days because I've spoken with a lot of in particular college students who are afraid to develop a relationship with a therapist or to reach out for help, even though they're feeling despondent or they're going through a, dep- a depressive episode, or maybe they're having some other sort of anxiety symptoms. Something is, is wrong and they know something's wrong, but they're reticent to actually reach out for help because they're worried that they're going to get Baker acted because they've heard of it happening to somebody mm-hmm. um, and they have heard those horror stories. Uh, so I, you know, there's no, I, I never want to discourage somebody from seeking um, mental health care, but I do want to encourage people, even if you're not at a point in your life or or if your your children are not at a point where they've reached um, a, an episode of depression or anxiety or any other mental health scenario, to research local mental health care providers. Know who's in your area. Um, make a list of inpatient facilities. Make a list of... Um, Potential therapists and and develop some sort of relationship with a therapist whether it's a clinical social worker or any sort of of Individual who can provide one-on-one therapy even if it's once every six months or once a year Just so you know this person and then if if you need to go in for something more serious You've developed that relationship and they can be more discerning about whether it's really an emergency situation Um, You mentioned suicide with a plan And that's an important distinction to make because a lot of people have suicidal ideation without ever intending to act on it, without ever actually having a plan. A Baker Act is not supposed to be initiated on somebody who just has suicidal thoughts. They actually have to have a concrete plan. Um, The the specific language used in the Baker Act is that um, somebody has to be in imminent danger based on recent behavior. Um, and so it has to be a verbalization for example of I i'm feeling suicidal and I know which gun i'm going to use Or I know what bridge i'm going to jump off of or I know the pills that i'm going to take that might suffice Um, But simply saying you know i've thought about it before isn't good enough to take somebody's freedom away and put them into a, a, a Supposed health provider that's really not providing mental health. What they're doing is they're preventing the immediate threat of you going out and committing suicide. But the moment that you're released, nothing's been addressed. The underlying problem has, has not been solved. And now you're terrified you know, of, of reaching out in the future. And so I think it backfires. Um, I think that you know, when people are scared to reach out for help because they're worried about being sent to one of these facilities, that we're we are going in the wrong direction. So yeah, it's, it's a good question.
0: Yes. So, what is a good situation of a Baker Act? Um, Because even if somebody wants to go to a facility where they can't harm themselves and they're seeking help, it sounds like, and statistics actually show, that they're not getting help there. It's just a holding center. And so, is it even a good option for somebody who needs help and wants? the help?
1: I think, you know, and this is where doing your homework first can really come in handy. Um, I, I would say virtually none of the Baker Act receiving facilities provide optimal care. Some provide better care than others. And so if you do get into a situation where you need to admit, or you need to admit somebody else for inpatient care, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, make sure you know what facilities, and this might entail traveling a little bit. Um, You might need to go down south um, and find a facility that you think is going to provide better care than, you know, Hernando County or wherever you you happen to be. Um, So certain individuals are so acutely, for example, suicidal and so close to actually committing suicide that it might be best to be in a holding center for a few days until they can actually have that that acute desire pass because we don't know very much about what drives people to actually go through with a suicide. But we do know that um, it's usually committed within five minutes of making the decision. So people do it on a very spur-of-the-moment, uh, in, in a very spur-of-the-moment manner. Um, and then we also know that, that people who successfully commit suicide have tried before. Um, so sometimes when we're dealing with somebody who is a danger to himself or to herself, it might be best to go ahead and get into that Baker Act receiving facility so that the, the immediate risk is passed. And you at least give yourself some breathing space to develop a plan for, for continuity of care afterward, and then you can get into a place where you can find a, a therapist who works for you. Then you might be able to do intensive outpatient therapy or a partial hospitalization, just so you get past that immediate danger. Um, I, you know, I always I, I always think preventative care is best. But mm-hmm. acute situations happen, even if you've been seeing a therapist for six months. That doesn't mean that you're never going to get to a point where you are acutely suicidal. And so there are situations where it is necessary and where it does come in handy for people. I just think that in the vast majority of situations in which it's being used, it, it's being abused. So,
0: yes, and people who have been bankrupted, many will say that uh, they're in a facility with a lot of people who are just really high or spaced out on drugs which in that case for them to be baker acted for drug overdose or or drug use to come off of a drug reaction that might make sense to to be baker acted for that reason but for somebody who is depressed or um just experiencing a a hard time in life, it it seems like being Baker Acted can actually make the situation much worse.
1: Yeah. Um, I think, you know, when somebody gets to that point, um, it's often based on a a profound sense of loss of control. Um, And so the Baker Act almost seems to be designed to be the precisely worst thing that you can do for somebody who's feeling that loss of control. So you're putting them in a facility where they... Have lost their freedom. Um, in a sense, they've felt like they've lost their dignity. They felt like they've lost all their creature comforts and any sense of control that they had before is gone. And so, if somebody's already feeling despondent, especially on you know on that basis, and then tossing them in a Baker facility where they're not really getting care, they're just you know um, getting shoved aside for a few days uh, can can definitely make things worse and then like i was talking about before there's the rebound problem where if that happens to them and they get to a point in the future where they really do feel that they could benefit for some from some help they're they're reluctant to go and try to get it yeah
0: yeah that makes sense so a good scenario for being baker acted would be somebody who's truly suicidal and getting ready you know to commit suicide or someone who is just not in a good state of mind, maybe on drugs, and they just need to detox in a sense?
1: Um, yes, and then uh, a lot of um, uh, a lot of individuals will note when they've been admitted to a bankrupt receiving facility that they're around individuals who are floridly psychotic. So mm-hmm. that would be another situation. There are individuals who um, have very severe schizophrenia, um, bipolar disorder with psychotic features, um, who have an acute episode. And because of that acute episode, they are a danger to themselves or others. Um, and they really don't even know what's going on. And so that's a situation where you really need the Baker act in order to stabilize the individual. Mm -hmm. Um, although I do, I do firmly believe that, um, this can be addressed also in an emergency room as well. Um, but you know, when somebody, And and frankly, a lot of these individuals, they don't, they're either homeless or they don't have a stable living situation. And so it's an in and out sort of circumstance where maybe they would benefit from a neuroleptic. This is one of those situations where a neuroleptic is definitely necessary in the acute phase, um, if not on a long-term basis, but they get out of the Baker Act receiving facility and they have no way to pick up medications. They have no way to pay for them. They have no way to obtain them. And so it's an in and out, an in and out sort of situation. the Baker Act is their only line of defense against you know, um, potentially being incarcerated in the future. So, so there are situations where it's necessary and every once in a while I actually do get a phone call from a family um, and they tell me the circumstances and it's not a case that I can take because I think the person really does need to, I, I would be worried if this individual were immediately released that they would be a harm to themselves or to others. Um, and there are some people who make homicidal threats um, those individuals are justifiably placed within a big act facility so that the doctors can assess whether there is an actual risk there. So
0: what do you see, hopefully <laughs> moving forward um, happening? I know you're working toward um, coming up with a, a better solution to maybe separate people into different facilities. Um, You know, those who are baker-acted, maybe even call it something else um, for people who are depressed and really need that help and support, who aren't going to be disempowered by being baker-acted. What do you see moving forward?
1: Well, it doesn't, it never happens. It, it, I mean, we're talking about uh, a sea change being necessary before anything really gets done. Um, and so it never happens without the involvement of individuals in the community. And it, it, it seems futile, um, but reaching out to your state senators, to your state representatives, um, can be the most uh, beneficial thing in the long term. So, what, what really needs to happen um, are a couple different things. Uh, one, there needs to be training. Um, For individuals in our schools, uh, there needs to be better training of our law enforcement personnel when it comes to the actual criteria for a Baker Act. Without this sort of training, and it needs to be ongoing, um, they're not going to know what the criteria are. And we're going to end up in this situation where they're Baker Acting people out of an abundance of caution. Um, That's not the legal standard. Baker Acting people out of an abundance of caution should not be what we're doing. So there needs to be training. And there needs to be money for training, frankly. They're not going to give it unless they actually have the funds to do it, because we are talking about state actors. Um, There needs to be some sort of mechanism whereby facilities are perhaps fined on a daily basis. It doesn't have to be anything dramatic, but fined, say, $2,000 each day when they are Um, violating a patient's rights, right now, you don't find very many lawyers who are willing to bring a lawsuit against a facility for violations of the Baker Act. And that's because it's really not profitable. There's no attorney's fees involved. And even if you were to win, the damages likely wouldn't be very large. Um, So most people just don't bring those suits. If you have a fine situation um, where the facilities are aware that they could suffer monetary damages if they simply disregard patients' rights, I think that that would go a long ways in ensuring that they actually take the time and hire the appropriate number of staff members and do what they need to do, stop cutting corners um, so that people's rights are respected. Um, And then uh, I think on on the back end, and this is the biggest part of it, Florida, I know in particular, is absolutely atrocious when it comes to mental health funding for voluntary services. So it's very difficult to find any facility in Florida that only does acute inpatient mental health care that's not a Baker Act receiving facility. Um, Most of them are what's called co-occurring. So they deal with both mental health care and substance abuse. I know that the opioid crisis is important and it's big and we need to address it, Um, but there's been such a focus on drug abuse treatment that we've completely neglected people who just need mental health treatment and they want it voluntarily and they want it inpatient and they want it on a long-term basis. Um, There are so few facilities and and there's so few ways to pay for it if you don't have outstanding insurance. Um, A lot of people, even if they do have insurance, will get in and after five days, the insurance company will say, we think you could benefit from outpatient therapy at this point. So we're not paying for any more inpatient. Um, so, so until we address, you know, building facilities where this can happen, uh, addressing a payment structure, we spend a lot of money on Baker acts. And we spend a lot of money in, at the state level on improper Baker acts. If we could funnel some of those towards voluntary patient, uh, voluntary treatment, I think it would go a long way in alleviating um, this particular problem. So that's sort of the three aspects.
0: Is there a success story anywhere or a model anywhere that already exists? Anywhere?
1: You know, I'm not aware. Every state handles it somewhat differently. I do know um, this isn't in the mental health context, but I believe I want to say it was Michigan and it might have been Minnesota that was doing involuntary substance abuse treatment and they were sending individuals to what could only be called a prison Um, and you know, and it was a very abusive situation People got wind of what was happening because these individuals were were being sent and they were being treated horribly And when the public finally found out about it, there was an outcry Um, and those facilities were eventually shut down Um, and people were start and now are starting to get actual substance abuse treatment now There's a question about whether involuntary substance abuse treatment really works in the long run, but But the the success story there is that people found out about it. They contacted their their representatives and they were outraged. And they said, we demand something change. And we demand humane health care and particularly humane mental health care. We can't have it both ways and and say we want to destigmatize mental health uh, care and mental illness and we want to treat mental illness as a legitimate medical problem but then have this bifurcated system where people with medical problems are treated humanely and people with mental mental health problems can't even find the, the, the help that they need and or can't afford it and are really treated, I think, in a lot of situations as though their rights don't matter. So we've got a long ways to go, but but it can happen. If, if enough people get concerned,
0: yeah. So I guess the bottom line is pay attention to what's going on because you never know if that might happen to a loved one or even yourself. And um, take action before it's needed. Know where you can go. Seek help before you might even need it. Just connect with um, mental health support before you may even need it. And uh, that way you can maybe bypass being baker acted if you don't really need to be baker acted but if you do it's there for you
1: and and i think as a final word on that i think that if you're a parent and you've never experienced a baker act of your child before or you don't know anybody who has i think it's very important that you reach out to your school and if necessary your school district and ask them you know what policies and internal procedures do you have in place to address baker acting of children from school grounds um do you have anything in writing because some school districts don't have anything whatsoever in writing and they're sort of winging it um and then also you know ask them what sort of training they're providing to their their teachers when it comes to mental health and and, um, and Baker acts in particular um but just get involved, whether it's it's on behalf of your child or on behalf of yourself or somebody that you know who's an adult, make sure that you know the resources that are available and, and be proactive. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah.
0: Well, Kendra, I want to thank you so much for all your wisdom for kind of guiding us through this process. And it, it will be different in, in every state. But this kind of gives you a glimpse of what it's like out there um, in regard to being Baker acted. And it's probably very similar where you are living, maybe even in the world regarding mental health. And it, can you tell um, people where you can be reached if they have questions or they need support? Can you uh, provide where people can reach you?
1: I would love to. Um, so I have a website, and that's ParisLaw.org, and that's Paris with two R's, P-A-R-R-I-S-L-A-W.org. I do have some contact submission forms on there, which is a great way to get me. It's going to come straight to my cell phone. Um, and if it's even, if it's not a legal situation, um, I have a lot of you know, experience with mental health care more broadly. And I love to provide resources for individuals. Um, so, and and you can also reach me on Facebook backslash Paris law. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, my email, if you want to just email me directly is on my website. I also have an independent website that's Kendra com. So you can reach me that way as well, but I welcome any feedback. If anybody has any, um, you know, suggestions, things that I haven't thought of, or just want to share an experience. Um, I would love to hear from anybody who'd like to talk to me about this because it's something that I really, truly care about and I want I want people to get involved and, and I want to hear your stories. So thank you so much for having me.
0: You're welcome. And I'll mention too that um, Kendra, if you look at her reviews, um, are amazing. Uh, I could tell right away she was the right person to talk to because she uh, just has um, puts her passion into what she's doing. And Uh, This is really your life's purpose, and you're making a big difference. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the interview about what to do when loved ones are feeling desperate and may need to be placed in an institution against their will and... Also, what to do if you or a loved one is placed against your will without merit in an institution. So, as we continue along with our series in addiction, I hope you found this interview enlightening. And I hope you will share it with others who may be struggling with this issue. I think it's so important to get the word out. This was an interview that was quite different from the usual interviews that I share with you, but I thought it was so important to, as I mentioned, get the word out about mental illness and what can happen, and what to do about it in a crisis. So settle yourself down now and sit in stillness, feeling gratitude for all you are and for those who help people who struggle with addiction. As always, you are so worth slowing down for.